Hi, friends, and welcome to the Oak Roots podcast. I'm your host, Sam Myrick, and I'm going to get you into today's Your Story So Far episode as fast as I can. Before I do, uh, remember that I'm available to have this same kind of talk with you. We can take a couple of hours to walk through your life story so far, and then you can choose whether you want to keep it for yourself or have it published like this one. We can even keep meeting after that first talk and work through some of what comes up together there, whether that's blockers that are keeping you from what you want to do next, or you getting some help around organizing or managing other parts of life. You can go to oakroots.net to see services available and what fees look like, or you can email me at sam at oakroots.net. All right. Let's get into today's story. I remember our house in Ohio. Um, I remember we uh, we lived probably about, what, like 10 blocks, I guess, from my grandparents um, in my hometown. I lived in, I lived on Lake Erie in Ohio. And um, my, I think my earliest really positive memories are summer memories and riding on my mom's bike to the beach. So we would, I think that's my happiest childhood memory because I come back to it over and over again. My mom and I riding our bikes early morning. I had really pale redhead skin. She's also a redhead. We would go down to the beach and we would play in the water and build sandcastles before it got really hot. And it was a treat because in the early mornings, I didn't have to put on sunscreen. I could just go as is like a normal person. (laughs) And um, we would go, we had some family friends that lived on the beach. They they had a hill behind their house and we would, they had a raspberry bush and we would pick a raspberry or two on the way up. And then I'd come home and watch Sesame Street and take a nap. And that was... Those were the memories of, um, even when she was pregnant with Jay, my brother, um, yeah, we would, we would still, initially we would ride the bike and then it was, uh, we would drive (laughs) because she was very pregnant, but Uh, we, yeah, even when she was pregnant, we would do that. Um, yeah. And then I think too, the other, a lot of the memories are at my grandparents' house, my mom's parents. We spent so much time there. And then uh, my great grandmother's house too. But even after she was gone, she died when I was in college. I mean, that house and my grandparents have been such a mainstay throughout my whole life that I just remember, I have an opportunity to go there and remember if that makes sense. So I remember playing like games in their yard. I remember hiding in the closets and playing elevator um, I remember falling asleep on their living room floor watching Golden Girls. I have memories back to having limited, and they're very foggy now in my 40s, but I still can remember not knowing the words for things. And I can remember, so I'm thinking my first foggy memories are probably like two. Jay mm. would have been born when I was almost three. So probably they, they start like right, like about a year before he, 
he's on the scene. Yeah, everyone everyone's different. Everyone's brain is different. I think that's why it's kind of an interesting question to start with. Um, and it's probably 50-50 on whether we're all right or not, or like, or we're remembering these things perfectly. But but they still, it, it, like in our minds and our experiences, they're, they're the starts of, of our story. They're the ways we process the world and experiences, whether they were, were perfect or not. I think some people have, you know, difficult memories and they, so they, I've talked to people who don't, a good friend of mine doesn't really remember middle school or high school, like might have a memory or two from childhood, but like, does it like all of that is. So I, um, for better or worse, I feel pretty grateful that I can remember that far back. Um, you know, now that I've done like things like ancestry and 23 and me, I realize like just how deeply rooted my family is in the Midwest slash Northeast area. We have generations and generations of history in the corn belt slash rust belt. And, um, my family was all over the town that I'm from. Um, we went to my great grandmother's house every week for dinner. My brother and I alternated weekends at my grandparents' house for sleepovers. Um, we it was it was my mom's side that we were close to. So most of my memories come from spending time with my mom's side of the family, with my grandmother, my grandmother's sister, my aunt, um, and then. Uh, my great-grandmother was around when I was a kid and she was really close to my mom. So we were there a lot. I remember going to spend the night at her house and like crawling around in the attic, even though I wasn't supposed to, because it felt like a secret room. And I just sort of reigned over that house when I was there. I would go in the, my grandfather had a bar in the basement and there was root beer in the fridge there and I'd go down and drink like four cans in a row and just lay up sick on the floor. <laughs> like that was, that was um, the kind of stuff I did. I remember staying up late and my grandmother teaching me how to play gin rummy and playing checkers with me and drinking tea. Like we were a couple of old ladies, which one of us was. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a fun time. I used to call the operator. I style zero on her phone to talk to the operator. And I got in a lot of trouble for that. Um, but it was, it was before nine one one. Right. So you could kind of do that without getting the cops sent to your house. And I would call and ask them if they wanted cookies or I'd ask how their day was going. And that was the place I did that. Um, yeah, she was, um, she was a presence in my life. Like before we, we moved out of Ohio and, uh, my, um, yeah, we were all the all my mom's cousins were always around. We were around them. We were around their families. Um, we had, you know, at Christmas everybody was at my great grandmother's house for at least one evening. Um, it was just it felt like there were lots of people around all the time. Yeah. Did did you, um, as a child, like kind of living in in all of that? Did you have a concept of, of that lots of other kids or like friends had the same kinds of experiences with family? Like it was the area you were in where, where was family and being close knit very common? Or do you think you had a unique experience looking back? 
I'd say for the most part, everybody was pretty tight with their families. You kind of stuck with your family. If you didn't have a family, I don't know what you did because that's kind of what people did there. Um, Most of the people in my hometown had generations of family and, you know, it is, it's, it's hard also to like think about, I mean, the greater context is that um, I was born in 1980. It was the beginning of all those factories in my, around my hometown closing. And after we moved away a couple of years later, um, mm-hmm. there was a huge drug crisis in my hometown. My mother Jones wrote an article about my hometown and the opioid epidemic. Um, they used it as a portrait for the opioid epidemic in in oh, the wow. country. And so, um, you know, it's definitely, it, it sounds idyllic to be around your family, have all these people around, but um, that was me in childhood. Like there were a lot of things that would have been different if I had grown up there and stayed there and, um, definitely mm-hmm. a difficult landscape for lots of families that did stay. And, and how, how do you, how have you figured that out or kind of processed that over time? Um, were you able to stay in touch with like many other friends or is it extended family for you in the area? I don't, you haven't said yet. I don't know how old you are. Like when you, when you leave there, what those circumstances are, but you've obviously also kept in great touch. Mm -hmm. Um, so we left in 1988. I had just finished first grade. Um, and we came back at least once a year for most of the rest of my childhood, like through 18. Um, and, uh, so we moved to Texas and had no family in Texas. We moved from my dad's job. Um, we didn't have obviously the same kind of, it was very different. Um, I, my mom talks a lot about that time being really lonely for her because, Mm. um, that was all she had ever known. And then we were in this place where lots of people were moving into the suburb of Houston and didn't have extended family around, but you know, they just, um, that was just how people lived and it just wasn't the way that we had lived. And, um, we did go back. I got to know my cousins, but it was just different. Like lots of things start. My, a cousin that I grew up with, you know, uh, got married. I didn't, two of my cousins got married. I didn't go to their weddings. Like, but we had, you know, been around each other a lot when I was little. And, um, uh, just as adults, really, my brother and I have reconnected with some of the kids that, were born okay. after we left. Um, so, um, so I guess the answer is that we, you know, we connected, we always were connected to my mom's parents and we were there a lot. Um, that felt like a home base, but moving away really fragmented us from that. It was really like pulling a piece mm. out of a puzzle and we were the puzzle piece and we um, were in a, on the other side of the country which was, um, yeah. which was weird. What was your, you've talked a lot about your, your mom and your mom's family being around there or being who, who you were tight knit with. Was your, was your dad from the area too? Was there any family? Uh, okay. Yes. 
Um, so, um, part of, I know that part of the reason that we did not communicate with my dad's side of the family is because my mom is ethnically part Jewish okay. and, um, that was not received well. Hmm. And, um, there were some other things too. My dad, um, when we were growing up, we just didn't really connect with his side of the family. Um, it's actually been cool as adults. My brother and I have reconnected with his brother's kids, but, um, and so we still are, you know, we connected with them, but as kids, we never saw them. We never went to see them. Um, was a brief period of time when I was probably about like six or seven, we tried to connect with my dad's mom and, um, and I think when I was a baby, they were closer, but just, there was a rift and it just didn't ever, mm. we just never really, it was, I certainly didn't feel like we were missing out on family, but we were because we, yeah. you know, there was family that we didn't have access to. So what was the point where you realized those kinds of things or, or like, I mean, obviously you're seeing, you're seeing a lot of your mom's family all the time, not your dad's at all. As a kid, did you process mm-hmm. that? Or what's the point where you hear what the, what the reason was or. I grew up with that understanding okay. that things were not okay with his side of the family, that we didn't really see them. And that, um, you know, my dad, um, my dad was not, uh, super connected to that. So I, so I kind of grew up just knowing that that was, that was our reality that we just didn't really connect with his side of the family. Um, yeah. And then, you know, um, once we moved to Texas, the people who came to visit us or the people, it was really my grandparents. It was my mom's Mm -hmm. parents. Um, my great grandmother came one time, maybe twice. And, uh, my mom's sister came once or twice, but it was usually we would go back and see people where my grandparents would come visit. And that was okay. That was how it was um, after we moved. So let's back up a little. I'd, I'd love to hear more about childhood. Um, like we, we've talked some about your family and they'll probably come up again. Uh, they often do for all of us in our stories. <laughs> but um who were you, not really apart from your family, but like uh, you, you told this the story a second ago about like calling the operator and asking if she wants cookies. Like <laughs> that's, I feel like that's a, a, a brief window into it, but like what, who were you, what were you interested in? Um, who were you kind of becoming yeah. as a kid pre, pre-move? Um, I have, um, my, from my understanding of, uh, of uh, stories I've been told. I was very, I was a really dramatic kid. Um, when I was little, I waved my arms around a lot and like (laughs) would sometimes tell big stories that nobody understood, Mm. but they, I would punctuate them by swearing. (laughs) I was like two years old. Um, so I was loud and dramatic. I also started reading when I was very little, um, before school started. And, so was um, that unique was in your family or did that come from some, was your, was your mother or grandmother were people readers around you and you saw it or or you picked that My mom encouraged that okay. a lot. She um 
I mean, people read in my family, but it wasn't, I didn't come from, you know, a life experience where like somebody had a library in their house or anything, you know, it wasn't like that. It just was like, my mom took me to, I've, one of my core memories is growing up in the library. Like we were at the library around the corner from our house all the time. I would get pulled out of school occasionally by my mom to go to, to library programming mm-hmm. um, because I was really close to the librarian. Um, it was right on the lake. Like you, they've remodeled it now. You can actually look out on Lake Erie from the library. It's, oh, wow. it's um, right there. Yeah. It's uh, and to me, like, I'm sure lots of library kids have th- this story of just the library seeming like a magical place. And it was the place where I felt like I could really be Jessica. And, mm. you know, it was, um, I felt really seen there. So um, I always had a ton of books from the library. My mom would take me uh, to book fairs at the school. And that continued even after we moved to Texas. I would come home with like a stack of books, you know, Um I would just, and I would just, my, we would set up a tent in the dining room of our old house in Ohio and I would lay in there and just read books all the time. Yeah. So hardcore reader, I had a lot of Barbies. I would make up stories about the Barbies. I made Jay play, you know, play out elaborate scenes with me that involved dancing. Yeah. Like it was, he probably has terrible memories. <laughs> <laughs> If I were to ask him um, what his earliest memories are, it's like play, playing dress like up Jessica with Jessica. Harassing yeah, me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and then after we moved to Texas, there was still a lot of that. Um, but it was um, – it just – you know, we had this big – we had this outdoor space in Ohio that we didn't really have in Texas. Like we had a backyard, but in Ohio we had a swing set and a sandbox. And my grandparents had this huge yard and we didn't really have that in Texas. The grass wasn't as soft and, you know, it just was different. And most of our schooling took place in Texas. So um, for me, childhood becomes more about socializing and, um, I think I, I became just, it, my friends were always like the quiet introverted girls who like would play Barbies with me. And like, we would, um, record ourselves singing along to like the radio, you know, Vanessa Williams or whatever was on the radio. And yeah, you and I, I was born in 82. And so I'm, I have to restrain myself from, from jumping in sometimes with some of this. Yeah. What about this? Right. Yeah. We were, we were like, of the age where you've already talked about Sesame Street and being in a library a lot. Me too. My mother was actually a librarian uh, in our town. Oh, and so, um, but uh, yeah, we also had like boom boxes or, or the equivalent and you would like mm-hmm. record songs from the radio. I'm sure. Like I'm thinking mm-hmm. of all the, of the Paula Abdul and new kids and Vanessa Williams and all the new stuff kids. Yeah. New kids. I had, we even, um, my friend Beth and I, we, even had the latest right after they were not cool anymore we still got no more games their remix album um i was out i was out by then i guess (laughs) we had i had um yeah it was it was intense we would sometimes you know it wasn't cool anymore 
we were in sixth grade. I, th- I can remember the last time we, um, we sort of closed her door in sixth grade. I went over to her house. We played no more games on her boom box and played Barbies. And, it, and I think that was kind of the last time we did it, okay. but I remember doing that. Like we can't tell anybody we did this. Uh, we, we know this is the, the end. This is the one last. This is the yeah. end. I think I'd probably moved on to vanilla ice and MC hammer. Uh, at, at that mm-hmm. point, the, the next year or like that point, um, you were too legit to uh-huh, quit. Yeah, I did have the I had the pants, and yeah. Oh my god! I, I'm sure it was hard to leave family and all you'd known so far up to that point. But do you remember it being? Um, was that like tough for you mm-hmm. or for your family? Like, was your mom and your brother and you like? Were you upset about it? Were you frustrated with dad? Did it cause any kind of like weird dynamics along with new place, new friends? Yeah. My, um, the year that we moved, well, I remember driving out of, out of Ashtabula, which is my hometown. Um, and, and my mom just crying the whole way out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we were on the road for two or three days, I think. And, um, we didn't have a house yet there, so we were gonna. We ended up staying in a hotel while we looked for a house. My dad. Um, it was that year or the year after he was home. Eleven days that year, he traveled so much. Mm, okay. And that was really hard. Um, my mom made some friends in the neighborhood, and my brother and I made some friends in the neighborhood. But um, I don't know. You know. That growing, I just feel like growing up in the suburb, there was, and we grew up in Kingwood in the suburb of Houston. And I remember getting bullied a lot. Um, Mm. I remember having a few core friends, but also getting made fun of because of the color of my hair, which was a lot oranger than it was a lot more orange. And uh, I was really sensitive. I was a sensitive kid and all the kids said I had a crush on this kid in class and it, it was just like, it was not, um, the things that felt okay to be in Ohio, just like sort of a dramatic or like into books or liking to play. Those things weren't cool when I got to Texas and started second grade. Um, all the kids stood up and knew to say the Texas pledge. I didn't know what that was. I raised my hand because, in Ohio, we would put our hand over our heart, raise our hand, and then also sing my country, Tis of Thee. And the teacher in in my second grade classroom said, Jessica, put your hand down. And that was, um, and then I did, they were all started saying this pledge. And I was like, I don't know what this is. And um, I remember that being really weird. And yeah. Um, then pretty quickly getting into the gifted and talented program. So that didn't help my social points either. <laughs> okay. Um, me, me too. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I get it. Um, um, yeah. It was called AIM in, in the school I was in, Activating Inquisitive Minds. Oh, ours is called WINGS. <laughs> okay. Do you remember what, was that an acronym? Win, or? For, win for the gifted students. Oh, okay. have you thought much about um that that time being tough whether it 
I, I think it's tough for us to kind of figure out like identity sometimes at different points in life, you know, also our identities now in the present, but like who we were or how the world was reacting to us. Um, have you thought about like, was it because you, you moved there and didn't know anyone you were from Ohio? It sounds like there were even physiological traits that you, that were unique or felt different. Some of it has to do with your brain and just the way you were wired. But is it a mix of all of these things or th that make think, that tough? Yeah, I think it's a, kind of a mix of all those things. I also know, too, like, um, you know, there were, without going too deeply into it, there were like the... Um, there was some abusive, there were some abusive elements in my house that sort of made me kind of weird, you know, like mm. I really wanted a, um, a adult, positive adult attention for my teachers. And I really wanted, um, to impress the other kids at school. And there were, so there was some of that too. Um, and I was just so serious about stuff. Like I just didn't really, I couldn't laugh things off. I couldn't, um, I had all these big feelings and I didn't know what to do with them. And, I, and so I think I probably also had issues with regulating okay. my emotions. I probably, um, you know, not that kids of our generation were, were all especially healthy anyway, but I do think that there were like some, um, some things that I was dealing with in terms of like coping or like dealing with my, with my own, mm -hmm. um, big feelings that just made me sort of a, an outcast or sort of a weirdo, um, when I was, when I was growing up I, and not to say I didn't have some friends, you know, like it wasn't, I wasn't like the, you know, the third grade pariah or whatever, but I, I did, um, there were, I was definitely an easy target for a certain group of kids that also had um, issues going on in their own houses. And they would, um, I don't know what they're, I don't know if they just like, if like recognizes like, but they gave me a hard time. Okay. And, and yeah, that was true pretty much through, you know, early middle school. Okay, that's, that was actually what I was about to ask was um, how long that period lasts for you, um, if it gets easier um, or, or changes. Sometimes that's when we find more of our people. Um, unfortunately, it feels like for a lot of, of people, as they look back on childhood or adolescence, things getting easier involved us changing. Mm. So do you have a a concept of a like, were you, were you able to stay yourself and and like just put up with all that was being thrown at you or was there was there some transformation where you tried to make things easier by going along with the flow so when we got to middle school i was also um in fourth and fifth grade i switched schools i it was a, you know, we were in, in a developing suburb. And so they built a school around the corner from my house. And so for fourth and fifth grade, I actually went to a different school than my best friend. And then in sixth grade, we were all at the same school. And so that helped because then I had my friends that I had started second and third grade with, 
and the friends that I had at my new school. So I had, it was just like a numbers thing, but I still had some people who gave me a hard time. Um, or maybe it was just regular, you know, middle school drama and it just impacted me, you know, more intensely. But the other thing that happened is, um, we were really involved in a church and, So I also had these friends in youth group and I was trying to figure, you know, figure out where I stood with all of that. I remember we did some kind of weekend. I forget what program it was, but we did some sort of, it was a Baptist thing because I went to, for, for part of my growing up in Texas, we went to a Baptist church and then we went to a non-denominational church. And in seventh grade, this was like a some sort of weekend where we stayed at somebody's house and had like a mentor and you're, you're probably talking about a disciple now. Disciple now. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yep. I thought you might know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, I did do a disciple now. And so then I was like, you know, I got into like Christian music for a little while. I listened to like a lot of like DC talk and audio adrenaline and that kind of thing. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can see the look on your face. You're like, yep. yep. But I'm keeping, <laughs> I'm keeping my mouth shut. I'm letting you tell your story. Yep. Um, and Astroworld had those like big music fests and we'd go to those a lot. Yep. Um, but uh, my friends, my friends in eighth grade were all like um, Christian Christian as well, but Christian with, uh, you know, capital C trademark. Like it was definitely like pop culture Christian. Like yeah. we, we liked the same bands. We read the same authors. We like, you know, it was all codified stuff. So does um, that start in Texas or just get um, more extreme in Texas? Like Ohio family, you talked about there being some of the re- the division in your family was related to part of your mother's family being Jewish or half Jewish or like, did, did you grow up with evangelical ism? I guess is the, the right mm-hmm. way to say that. Um, but before Texas or that's part of like fitting in or what the culture is like in Houston in the early and mid nineties. We had a really, before we, before I was even um, a fully developed human, you know, I was still a baby. We had a broken history with church we were going to a church in my hometown and there was a rift. Someone had an affair with someone else. My parents were used as a cover for this affair. It caused a lot of damage. And so we switched churches. And then when I left, when we left Ohio, we were going to the Nazarene church where my parents were really involved. And by proxy, I was involved as well. Um, I have early memories there. I was, best friends with the pastor's daughter. We used to get in trouble for talking during church. Um, But then like, I know it was terrible. We were so bad. And then. um, I wasn't shaking my head about you and your actions. I was shaking my (laughs) head about that being a thing that churches get onto kids about. Um, Somebody else was, I remember at one point it was uh, pastor Mike was our pastor. I remember, uh, somebody else was preaching and he kept pointing at us to stop talking, but we were giggling. And so Pastor Mike actually came down from the stage and sat between me and Elaine so that we would stop talking. (laughs) 
anyway, um, then we got to Texas and uh, we found a church pretty quickly, but I had no friends there. I mean, there were people that were friendly to me, but I didn't really, there was a click, it was a clique of girls and their parents were really involved. And um, with your dad gone a, a lot of that, I think you say of that first year with work, was that, was that something he cared about or was important to him or that was something your mother cared about or thought maybe it could could be a connection point for her and, and the kids. Uh, how, how do you wind up in a different kind of, of tradition? And within a few years, you're at DC talk concerts at Astro world. Like what's the impetus for that? I think my parents really wanted Jay and I to find a connection at church. That was a big deal for them. And I don't remember ever going to church without my dad home. I remember all four of us would go and, mm-hmm. um, it was a big enough issue that we eventually, by the end of middle school, um, left that church and went to another church, a non-denominational church. And my dad was in leadership there. My mom worked with the welcoming committee or, you know, she had a lot of friends there. We were very involved there and I had friends there. Okay. Um, and I don't that's a place where like, I don't remember all of the four of us going. I remember it just sort of like we would all four go together, but it was like, we were all involved enough that we were dipping in and out. I'd go for a youth group thing. My dad had a meeting, my mom, you know, whatever. And so we were very, it was across the street from my middle school. So Mm -hmm. it was really easy to just, um, you know, show up to, and it was around the corner from our house. Um, we, I think it was probably the end of, so end of eighth grade, between the end of eighth grade and the beginning of 10th grade, two things happened that really changed my relationship to church. One was that my best friend who had been my best friend up till now, my whole time in Texas, sort of my social crutch, she moved away and, Mm. um, I, it was the end of middle school and I was going to have to start high school without her. Yeah. And the other big thing that happened is, um, there was a rift in our church and it was over, um, it was between basically Baptists and charismatics. And, okay. um, so we, my brother was also kind of going through his own thing. He was like a skater. He, you know, was trying to find his way. So, um, we, my brother and I started skipping around the time I got my learner's permit. My brother and I started skipping Sunday school and going instead to Burger King to get breakfast. Okay. And, um, I think we both just sort of decided that we were tired of church. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was on one side, my dad and my family was on my dad. I say my dad, but he was a deacon. So it was specifically like the deacons were on one side of this issue and the other in the church, the bulk of the church was on the other side. Um, and unfortunately that also, it was a, a bunch of the kids in the youth group went on a mission trip and, um, there were, 
there were people in the church that didn't agree with the mission trip and my family was one of them. And so I didn't go. And so then there was a rift in the youth group and oh, wow. yeah. yeah, it was a really big break. And so, um, we were kind of done. Like my brother and I started listening to tooth and nail music. You okay. know? We were still, uh, still Christian, but edgy or stuff. Yeah, edgy. Like, I didn't know what you were going to say. It was like, yeah, then we get into grunge or whatever, <laughs> but no, it's okay. Yeah. Not death metal or anything, but, uh, but, um, Christian punk rock. So, yeah. um, we would, we started going to like those shows and, um, it was sort of, but I will say it was sort of one foot out the door for us. It was a way of us kind of experimenting with like, what does it mean to like not be part of a church community? What does it mean to like maybe not believe in this stuff? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to not be part of sick communities over and over again? Um, what does it mean to be young and like just be young and not have all this stuff that you're carrying with you? Yeah. About like being a good kid or like not carrying around, you know, some some guilt um, about just being a kid. So I think probably by the time I hit 11th grade, Jay at this point would have been tail end of middle school going into, I think he was in ninth grade when I was in 12th grade. So um, he was just on the brink. We were just on the brink of sharing the same group of friends. We already had some similar friends and, um, our journeys were really similar. Like when we're in the same house, um, there's some real dysfunction going on at home. That's really traumatic for us. And so we are done. We leave church. We stop going. I I don't even keep up the facade anymore. I just, my parents are like time for church and I'd be like, okay. And I'd roll over in bed and just not Mm -hmm. go. Um, then at some point in there, Things, conflict, I think I can say, you know, conflict in our house reached a pretty critical point um, where divorce kind of seemed on the table. There had been some moments that were physical. Okay. Um, They had involved my mom and my dad and my brother. And Mm. about this time, um, things are really bad between me and my mom as well. And so I start going to therapy. Okay. A therapist starts coming to our house. And that was the beginning of my journey with therapy and with getting to actually say, like, like actually being full, like getting to use my voice, getting to like be fully developed Jessica and really figure out not just like, what does my family believe or like, where are we, what are we doing now? What are we but this is where I actually start to think about like what matters to me and um, how that might be different from what matters to my family or to my mom and my dad. And um, it, it sets a precedent for me to be in therapy for the rest of my life because I, it, it makes such a difference for yeah. me. It really did repair for my mom and okay. I. That's late in high yeah. school. When that kind of thing starts. That going. would have been probably about eleventh grade, okay. maybe I think eleventh grade. So you you had a couple of components there, like what what the faith journey looked like, you know, in, in your adolescence, um, 
and, and then making a decision to kind of pull away or, or pull out of, of that um, late in high school and some of what's going on in, in your family and, and you beginning your kind of kind of mental health journey. Um, what are other parts of, of high school look like? Um, what are you, who are you thinking you will be as an adult or what are the things you um, find yourself involved in apart from, from church when you're there? Like how is adolescence kind of um, coming to a close with you at home and what is the next step or what is journeying out of, of your home or family of origin look like? Mm. About the time I get my driver's license, I stop, you know, I've stopped going to church and I start hanging out at Starbucks with the kids that hang out there. That's where I first start smoking cigarettes. That's when I start, um, (laughs) you know, hanging out with the dudes that think you know, they're philosophers and like, you know, talking. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Interest, interesting facial that. hair is beginning. Uh-huh. Yeah. Are we are we, are we talking like full on hacky sack kinds of experiences? Um, some of them, yeah, okay. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we would hang out at Starbucks for two, an hour or two after it closed even just sitting yeah. in the parking lot, like talking and. Um, a couple of those friends had, you know, parties and sometimes I'd go to those, but mostly it was just like finding interesting conversations. There were people that were like, you know, trying to find like, you know, interesting experiences, like drinking things they didn't know what they were, you know, you know, trying different drugs. And that wasn't my journey. My journey was always like, just looking for interesting people to be around. And, um, I liked, I was also the writer. Like that's kind of, that was kind of my identity. It was as the writer. When does that kick in for you? And and there'd be a transition from, from maybe only being a a reader and, and taking in others views of the world or other stories and starting to create your own. I'd always written. Um, I was, I've always been kind of known as, like my, my family talks about how even before I could write, I was writing, like I would put all the little Fisher Price people on my hands and make little plays. And, um, then with the Barbies, but I also, when I was really lonely in elementary school, I would, um, I think that bullying does that, you know, it's, I had friends, but it felt bullying just makes you feel lonely. And so I would draw, pictures of imaginary people and create little profiles of them and write stories about them. And that's how I, that was kind of my experience of writing stories. And then middle school, I'd write stories and show up late to my sleepover and bring stories for my friends to read. (laughs) And it's like a big nerd. Um. (laughs) It sounds fun uh, to to me. I mean, you, you, the, the sense in which you, and, and no, teenager no middle schooler or high schooler does this perfectly but the sense in which it seems like you kind of already knew who you you were or you were um kind of comfortable in in your own skin even when other people were trying to make you not feel that way i don't 
that you that you kept I a lot of that and then can get to a point it sounds like where by like late in high school you you have you've found the others like like you I think that may, that that resonates that sounds pretty on point I think you know there are lots of things about myself that I didn't know um, and I don't know that I was always comfortable being me but I didn't know how to be anything else and I um, definitely felt comfortable. Like I often looked for other people to sort of tell me what my identity was. And it was often things that they noticed about me. But one of those things was Jessica's a writer. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. I guess I am a writer. And so I would sort of take on some of those features and throw out the parts of it that I didn't like or... um, and I think, you know, some of that is the result of, you know, some, some emotionally abusive things that I experienced when I was younger, where um, I was never, I had to do a lot of reality checking and a lot of figuring out, like, is this, is this real? Am I really this? Is that, does this make sense? And Um, which sounds a lot, you know, like what um, people who have dealt with emotional abuse, it's like something that is pretty common, like trying to, or a a certain kind of abuse, like gaslighting, Mm -hmm. like trying to figure out like, is this, is this real? Like, am I this person? And, um, and, and my parents were always supportive of me wanting to be a writer. It was just never a question. It was never like, is, are you going to make any money at this? It was just like, well, just because a writer, of course, she's going to study writing. And so when I, there wasn't a question about like, I'm going to be studying creative writing in college. Like that was just what I was going to do. Okay. And um, so I did like, that's what I, that was the big identity that I felt most comfortable in, I think. So the, the question is not, what you're going to study or, or what you're maybe going to do, but, but how, how will she get there? Like, where will you go? How, how will the bills get paid? Like those things will work themselves out, but Jessica's a writer. Well, and I think, you know, the other, so you as a GT kid know, like a gifted, talented kid know that like, some of that pressure by the time you get to high school is pretty intense. And so when I was in 10th grade, I had a moment of just burning out, Mm -hmm. I think on top of some of the other things that were going on in my house and, um, you know, all the church stuff. And, uh, so I actually had a conversation with my mom at one point about whether or not I would need to drop out of high school. And she, I remember her saying, I'd rather have a dropout daughter than a dead daughter. Oh, and wow. okay. the compromise was um, that I would drop all my gifted and talented classes mm-hmm. and just take local classes. Okay. And then by the time I got to 12th grade, I missed gifted and talented English. And so I just went up in 12th grade. I went back up to gifted and talented ELA. And then I, kept level everything else but um so I think there was also this idea that like Jessica has been pressured since she was eight years old 
and pulled all-nighters since she was like 10 mm. and now she gets to do whatever she wants um okay. so i think that that was definitely part of the decision for sure so how do you make a decision about college um if if the end of high school is this mix of trying to figure out um your mental health and can I even finish high school um, and things are going on in your family and you like writing, but there's, there's a lot going on. It sounds like, like late in high school for you. And I would assume that that plays in decisions about like how far away do I go or where do I want to study? Like what was a decision like for you about moving out into the world on your own? You know, I was so wrapped up in what was going on with me and my mental health and and um, what was going on at home that I had friends applying to college and that just was so not in the realm of what I was doing at that moment. Um, my brother at this point had gotten into some trouble and um, I was having you know, I'd had these big fights with my mom, but I was in counseling now. And, um, so kind of last minute I applied to U of H and was kind of excited to be like, Oh, well they have a really great creative writing program. So I'll apply to them instead of going to community college for a year. And then I also applied to the honors college and I got into both. So I got into the honors college at U of H I'd studied creative writing and that was, it was the one college I applied to. I got in, I moved on campus and that was my trajectory. I didn't even, I, when I was young, I cared so much about that stuff. Um, when I was in middle school and early high school, I cared so much about like dreaming about where I'd end up and what college I'd be like. And by the end of high school, I was just exhausted and I didn't want to do it anymore. And so, um, it worked. I mean, it, it really, it worked out for me that it ended up being the place that I probably would have ended up anyway. Mm. And it was a really good place for me to go. It was 45 minutes from home. Um, I still, you know, got to see my brother all the time. Um, I could still stay in touch with some of my friends, but it was far enough away. I was living in the dorms. I could kind of do my own thing and have my own life. Yeah. And not get caught up in the drama at home. Okay. So, so I did that. And um, what's what's college like for you? I mean, do you continue to be able, like, in a specific program like that, you're able to find your people, and um, are you learning more about who you are and who you aren't? Um, what's that period like? And, and then, like, kind of transitioning into career or post college. Yeah. So I pretty quickly got into a pretty unhealthy romantic relationship and um, that lasted for the first half of college. Um, But it was also a time where I really learned a lot about, um, at that point I was openly identifying as agnostic and not like, there might be something there probably is, but I'm not interested in, 
engaging with it at all. And um, then, you know, I'm in this unhealthy relationship, but I'm also making some friends. I'm distancing a little bit because I'm in this unhealthy relationship. My family's responding to it pretty negatively. Mm. They're, when I am home, they're trying to limit how much I see this person and um, it gets pretty intense. And at this point, all of us are seeing a family therapist who's also saying this isn't a good relationship, but, you know, let me help mediate these conversations with your family. Um, so I lose, um, I had gotten an academic scholarship. I lose it the first year, um, because I'm so caught up in this relationship, but, um, I'm also kind of out and about in town and I'm learning about like places I like to hang out and music. I like, um, more, I'm learning more about music. I'm like, I like more about, books I like to read. I'm learning about communities where there are poets and they're doing poetry readings. And um, so even though this big thing is happening in my life and it is incredibly unhealthy, it's also the time period where I meet my two best friends who are still my best friends today. Um, And I am... uh, learning how to make some adult decisions for myself um, and choosing my classes. And the classes that I am doing really well in are the creative writing classes um, and the classes where I get to do discussions. And I can tell that some of my professors can see that something's going on with me, but they're not quite sure what it is. And they also have a big group of students and they're all my age and doing dumb things. And so they're not sure, you know, how to, I have one professor who asks if I'm okay. Mm. And then, um, then I start going to Ecclesia, which is a church in Houston. And, uh, I start going there because my friend Linda tells me that all the stuff I hate about church isn't necessarily what church is. And there are a lot of people who are liberals and Christians and um, where it doesn't, you don't have to get dressed up and all these, you know, all these things that I think are so interesting. So um, I end up trying it out and then I end up attending pretty regularly. My brother drives down from, uh, Kingwood and picks me up every Sunday and we go to Ecclesia and in building relationships at Ecclesia, um, I lose the romantic relationship. Like we have a big fight because I'm not paying enough attention to him and I'm very involved in this community Mm. and kind of ends, ends the relationship, which is great. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, uh, then I, um, get very involved in, it's the second part of college. So I get really involved in my classes. I make some more friends who are also still my friends today. And I start working at the writing center at U of H, 
um, I get pretty involved with the staff there. And a lot of those people are my friends. And I end up graduating, even though I lost my academic scholarship, a similar thing happens to what happened in high school, which is I blow half of my experience, but the other half I do so well that I graduate cum laude. And so all is right with the world, okay. yeah. um, which is similar to high school that started strong, ended badly, but still graduated, you know, yeah. top half of the class. Same thing with, with college. I have them screw up halfway and then, um, and the, the average of it all, because you're so high performing at, to, to start things still. Ends yes. Up okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank goodness for gifted programs. <laughs> I guess. I <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, yeah, it ended up okay. And, um, I graduated just a semester late, but it wasn't that big a deal. And I, again, hadn't thought any, and I had not thought about the future at all. Um, I didn't even really think about, I'm going to graduate and the next day I'm going to have to move out. I hadn't packed anything. My dad hmm. and my grandfather show up the day after graduation and they're like, we have to move you today. What is going on here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Were you expecting us to pack all these books? <laughs> or, yeah. yeah it, was, um, it was an experience. So yeah <laughs> um anyway we uh does does that mean you haven't there's I'm trying to figure out how to say this um that's a very practical thing that sometimes just happens like that that oh i did, wasn't thinking about how i've got to move out or i've had a lot of other things on my plate or it could be like indicative of of the way everything's going like is there a plan uh, with finishing up college for what you'll do next, like big picture kind of st- what a career or what you want to do. I do think there's like um, some thematic stuff in my life that looks like this where I'm staying very present and then the future starts to butt up against the present and I've not, um, paid much attention to it coming up and then I'm faced with it. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've gotten better about that and I'm able to see it coming and think a few steps ahead, um, without giving up the staying present aspect of, um, that I think is really a good thing. But, um, I think I just hadn't, I had this image of like what it was going to, like, like you say, I had this image of how it was supposed to be. Like, what is the big, you know, what it, I'm going to work for a magazine. I'm going to work for a newspaper. I'm going to be writing some capacity, okay. but I hadn't applied to anything. I hadn't, um, hadn't thought of an apart. I was going to move back home. Right. Just like if it was, if it was summer break. Um, but then I was going to be there and I guess I hadn't really thought about that. Um, It starts, so that we're up to like 2004 at this point, and I had not, I graduated winter 03, and for the first half of the year, I met home working at Pier 1, and also sometimes picking up cafe shifts at Ecclesia. Okay. 
and um, I then a friend of mine is working at a charter school um, in downtown Houston. Uh, not downtown Houston, sorry, closer to. It's the oldest barrio in the city near the ship channel. And um, I, she says, we have a position open. Uh, I interview, I get the job, and then that's my first teaching job. Was it specific um, to to writing or English or? It was okay. an English, English position, um, mostly ninth grade. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a credit recovery school. So it's for kids who have dropped out and are now trying to get their diploma. Okay. Had you thought about teaching at all? Was that something that was on your radar or it was like, there's a position and I, I need to jump into something. The, the, the mythology that I had grown up with and that I knew of in college was that um, those who can't do teach. And so that was like kind of last on my list of things to Mm -hmm. do. Um, I didn't think like that was for me. I was like, this is not. And then I kind of opened up to it a little bit. I did work at the writing center, which is a teaching position at um, U of H and I had been applying to positions and hadn't gotten any bites. And I applied, I started applying to some schools just to teach while I figured out what came next. Um, and then all of a sudden it was the first day of school and mm-hmm. I'm fresh out of college. I'm a year older than my oldest student. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't know what I'm doing. I've not gone to school for teaching. Um, so I've seen syllabi before. So I type up a syllabus and I wear some boots cause they make me feel a little tough and I go the first day and I, and you know, it was really hard and I cried a lot and I also really loved those kids, um, that I worked with. I probably did some damage. Like I, you know, didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know, I can remember really tough interactions I had with kids. I can remember like fights with kids getting their heads banged on bricks and mm. all kinds of things. But I can also remember, um, you know, one time I went out to talk to a teacher and I was walking back and I screamed because these boys that I taught were fighting on the sidewalk and all of my students rushed to the door to come help me because they thought I was getting beaten up. And um, I realized like I had developed this relationship with these kids. I had this girl that you would loan me her book, her favorite book to read. And I would loan her books and I just, there were some kids that I really connected with. I still have letters they wrote me. Um, And I realized I just really uh, maybe accidentally found like a really good job Mm. for myself. Okay, yeah. (laughs) That I really loved kids and that I, and and that I um, empathized with them quite a great deal and was able to, 
um, connect with them on a level that I didn't anticipate and couldn't imagine leaving. Couldn't imagine not working, like just not teaching anymore and going on to some other job because this was really a meaningful thing for me. Okay. So that's how I became a teacher. <laughs> okay. And uh, how long are you there at that school or doing that work? I'm at the charter school for two years. Um, some other things that happened while I was there, um, right right around the time I graduate, um, right around in there, my brother is diagnosed with type one diabetes. He's living in Austin for college and some things at our school are escalating. Some kids set half the school on fire. We lose a bunch of classrooms. Hmm. Um, and so about that time I moved to Austin. Hey there, it's Sam again. I'm pulling away just for a second from today's story. Don't worry, we'll get back there in a minute. Uh, Seemed like a good time to remind you that you can have this kind of experience with me too. You owe it to yourself or to family or, or friends to take a couple of hours and chronicle your life story in your voice. Then you can choose whether you want to keep it for yourself or have it published like this one. Uh, Maybe that's all you want to do with Oak Roots, but if it would help to keep meeting for a session or two to talk through some of what comes up, I can help with that too. Just go to oakroots.net to see services available and what fees look like, or you can email me at sam at oakroots.net. Okay, let's get back to the talk. I start looking for, I've got my certificate at this point, my teaching certificate, And so I start looking for positions in Austin and it does not look good. I can't seem to find anything. I've I've just gotten my certificate, even though I have two years of teaching under my belt. And uh, then I find this school. It's not a high school. I've been working at a high school, but this is a middle school. Principal really likes me, thinks my resume looks great. The rival middle school tries to recruit me while I'm in the interview process. Um, and that just everything goes really well. And so um, they offer me a job and I take it. And at this point, the last two years, I've been living in um, the Montrose area of Houston. And um, I pack up all my things. I have to go take... Um, the middle school test to be certified to teach middle school. And if I fail it, I won't have a job anymore, but I have to do it the morning I move to Austin. Okay. Uh, So I go take the test and then I go pack up the last of my boxes and I drive to Austin. Okay. And, um, I passed it. So yeah, (laughs) your, your assumption is I'm going to Austin no matter what. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I hope I hear that I passed this test and get this. Yes. Okay. All right. (laughs) So did, did you know anyone apart from Jay? I mean, you, you talked about um, late in college, finding a, a church home that, that was a, a better fit for you than anything you'd seen so far. Um, you've gotten close to, to some of these kids and, and this school that you're at for a few years. Um, and I, I don't know if, you've, if you're like 
finding your way into that community as well, or like where the school, like, is it a tough decision for you um, to, to move? Because the, the only other time I mean, that, that you had moved from Ohio to Houston, that wasn't your decision and it was hard. Um, and then you've had most of your life at this point in Houston, even stick around there for, for college. And then after college, like, is it tough to make the decision to move to Austin or what informs it? I, at the time, my brother's there. I also have some good friends who have moved to Austin to go to UT. Um, I have some friends that are working in Austin at this point. And I do have some friends from Ecclesia who are now living in Austin and going to Mosaic. And um, I have actually gone to Mosaic a few times once I've moved. By the time I've moved, I've, I've gone, um, you know, I've, I've even gone to like a couple of meetings at Dawn's house, like when it was just four people. And, um, I start to feel, I've spent a lot of time there with Jay. I've brought friends with me to visit Jay. I've got friends who I've also stayed with there, um, And it just starts to feel like this is the place where I need to be. I need to be farther away from home at this point as well. um, I'm also, Ecclesia is also going through a rift. Um, There's there's some upheaval there. Um, Some people are leaving. There's a shift at the, one of the, at the Taft building that we used to meet at. Um, and I'm part of a group that ends up leaving as a collective. And, um, then there's some, you know, some friendship, like some friends are staying, some friends are not staying and it feels like a good time to leave. Um, but I'm also dealing with, um, a huge issue with my anxiety Mm-hmm. Um, my anxiety and depression has like just gone nuts. Like I've just, by the time I leave for Austin, I have just now started medication for anxiety and depression. Um, because my second year, every morning when I'm going to work, my hands are going numb and, um, a few times a week I'm throwing up between classes outside of my classroom and um the only thing I have energy for at the end of the day is to like close all my blinds and lay in bed and watch Sex in the City on Netflix and um that's about it um I start going home a lot to stay with my parents and at that point it's it's we're approaching summer vacation and social gatherings are actually starting to seem dark like they're starting to seem just like not joyful events but sort of like foreboding events and i start i've been going to the doctor quite a bit um they're like there's nothing wrong with you why do you you're not dying why are you in here 
So I finally go to tell the doctor, like, this is nuts. Like I've been in here so much and my heart is racing and I don't know why I'm like upset all the time and I can't live like this. And so I go on medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to go on medicine. I'm afraid, you know, of, you know, it's medicine. Oh no. And, um, that can be especially tough. I I think for creatives as mm -hmm. well, there's a, I don't know if you had any of that, but I know there, there can be a fear, um, as, as someone who's been on anxiety and, and depression medication the last eight or nine years, um, I know that I did not have that fear because things felt so tough with the way my life was. I thought anything's got to be better. And I didn't perceive myself as a creative anyway, or like something's yeah. going to change in my head that's going to impact who I am. It only felt like it was for the better, but I've known many creatives who really struggle, musicians, artists, writers, with is 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 me having the ability to create mm. something tied to who I am and even my struggles or even my things that feel kind of broken. Like, am I going to still be able to, to do that thing? Um, mm -hmm. What was that part of, of a process for you? Or was it so bad at that point? So debilitating that you're like, yes, sign me up, whatever it takes. When I went on medicine, it was at that point, but okay. I, I definitely understand that feeling as well. Like there were for the six months prior to that, I did worry about, you know, these are my, this is the source of my feelings. Like this mm -hmm. is where my feelings are coming from. It's the same place where my anxiety is coming from. How am I ever going to be able to write anything inspired again? And, um, I think also the stigma with creatives too. I think, you know, the idea that like, I think that's definitely a stigma, like, oh, you're going to medicate yourself out of your, out of your, you know, gifts or whatever. And yeah. um, so I think I was afraid of that too. And um, I was afraid of over medicating. Um, so there was definitely a lot where I was like, you know, I don't want to end. I think one of the things I said was I don't want to end up addicted um, to this medicine, which, you know, once you're on the medicine, you know, that's not really the converse. Like that's not, it's so much more complicated and that's not about being addicted, but, but I had heard it talked about that way. And he was like, no, we'll monitor you. And, um, and fast forward, you know, 20 years, I'm on the same medicine that I was on when I just a higher dosage, but, yeah. um, it really, the, the next, when I went in for the follow-up after I met with that doctor, I hugged him because mm -hmm. I just felt so much relief. My mom, the morning I went in to see that doctor went to hug me and my shoulders were just like caved in toward my chest because my muscles were so tight pulling forward. Mm -hmm. It was like painful to live with that anxiety, that level of anxiety. Um, and, you know, being a teacher and having that, that responsibility, but also working in a, I, like the day half our school burned down, we taught, <laughs> we taught in that oh, wow. building. Yeah. So um, there were there were certainly factors that like exacerbated the problem for me. Um, and 
the medication made made it so that I could actually deal with those those issues rather than you know living in pain and trying to deal with those issues so so um I arrive in Austin freshly medicated okay I was gonna Um, say you you've done a lot of important work it seems like mm -hmm. and the and all the different moving pieces of life kind of are in a seem like they're in a place where I I could see how them you're ready for Mm -hmm. for the move I was, I was ready, you know, I had also just, um, recently started, um, to be, to be vegetarian again. I had tried it in high school. It didn't stick. My mom got mad at me because I got sick. And then, um, I became vegetarian a month or two before I left Houston and have stayed vegetarian for the rest of my life. I've been vegetarian Mm -hmm. for 20 years. And, um, I was, it was ready. It was just time for me to like make some changes toward, I think I just wanted a break from like the, from the story that was being told in Houston and how I was like the story of who I was in Houston. I wanted to try something new. Okay. Yeah. So that took me to Austin for seven years. I was there. Okay. And that whole time, are you at the same school or teaching the same kinds of things or grades? I was, I taught seventh grade for seven years at the same okay. school. Um, and I was really happy there. I, when I left, I was working for an amazing principal. I really liked him. He was such a great cheerleader for all the things that we wanted to do. Um, I worked with a department that was pedagogically aligned. We believed all the same things about kids and literacy. Um, I had some really good friends. And also, uh, I was not doing a whole lot with my life that was expansive or trying new things. Um, I would make a new friend here or there, but a lot of my evenings where I would come home, I would smoke a pack of cigarettes and I would read a book. And that was my life for a couple years. Um, I got it, you know, it was right before Austin prices just exploded. So I lived in central Austin and then I got, I was in an apartment there for three or four years and I got priced out mm-hmm. um, and then was living in a, in another apartment there for a year that um, I really liked before I got priced out of that. And, uh, you know, there was, um, of course, at Mosaic there, I, that was sort of where a lot of my core friendships were. Um <clears throat> But some of those sort of fell apart too. There were, um, you know, as as young couples, like, you know, they get married and then they split up. And I had a lot of friends at Mosaic who who um, are no longer married. They were like my young married friends, and they're not married anymore. Okay, how much of your experience was common or or more common for teachers versus? Um, if it was just the way you were living as a teacher, 
like the, the degree to which you kind of poured yourself into that work or found a lot of your time being spent there or maybe identity even being found in being a teacher versus some of the other parts of, of life. Um, how, how do you look back on that? You know, I'm definitely at a phase in my life where I'm reflecting a lot on how misogyny has played a role in okay. shaping my story. And um, education is such mm. a misogynistic field. It's such a place where, like, the whole concept of um, uh, account of te- school accountability and the oversight of teaching standardization. A lot of it is built around the mistrust of educators because the field is, you know, about 85%, okay. 90% female. And um, you find that a lot, I think, in other fields where it's a lot of women, like nurses or, you know, caretaker roles. So, um you know, I think what was always frustrating for me before I started making some big changes is, um, you know, especially, especially in Texas, I think you can see with hindsight how some of um, the ways that ed- public education is shaped now in Texas, um, the beginnings of that were happening even when I was there, um, this idea of the scores and even if the scores, the scores, the scores, the scores, even if the test scores were, they looked good in some areas, the focus was always on what wasn't going well with the test scores. Why were they not going well? What could we do with our instruction, not with the assessment, but with the instruction to improve the scores? And, um, a lot of the people that I really enjoyed in leadership, um, in my job started shifting around in their careers and moving to different places and, um, moving to different positions around the district. And the problem with, um, especially in, in, when you're working with English, when you're working with literacy, the ideas around what works for kids for reading and writing shifts all the time. And it depends on who's in power and who has the political, um, who basically who has the political power and what their beliefs are. And so I just started to feel really frustrated with that, especially as I got more involved in like, like I started doing, um, I started getting involved in National Writing Project, and I started getting involved with okay. the National Council for Teachers of English. I started doing research with people in education at UT and St. Ed's, and I was doing a lot of really good work. We were we were researching and writing articles and presenting and interviewing, and we were doing lots of good thinking around what works for kids and what works for literacy. and. We were one of the few schools where we had a pedagogically aligned department. So lots of people were interested in that. And um, still, still we got questioned all the time and had to prove ourselves all the time. 
and it just got boring to me. It also got frustrating. It felt um, unfair. And any echo of that in my life um, with, you know, uh, men I met or friendships I had, any echo of that in my personal life was also frustrating too. I, during that period where I was um, trying to decide what would come next for me, one of my friends was assaulted. I had to go mm. with her to the hospital to get a rape kit done. That rape kit is still on a shelf oh, in God. Austin somewhere. And um, I just, uh, lots of things like not as, you know, traumatic as that, but lots of little things too. just um, the ways that I felt dismissed or like my voice was not heard or it was, I was not, um, I watched other women just sort of like be very smart, fully developed human beings, just ignored by people who, it just was so frustrating to me. And I, um, I didn't want that. I did. I no longer wanted to be like the quiet cat lady who came mm. home and read books. Do you know what I mean? Like I wanted my story to have more shape than that. Um, and I knew that if I continued to live in this pattern, that like I was just going to be relegated to this role my whole life. And so was that a? I didn't want that. Was that a way that you saw yourself, or it was just the way you perceived you were seen by this broken world and broken system you were a part of? Maybe they can't be divorced. Th those two things. I don't know that. Yeah, I think you know. Um, I in my forties, I'm starting to understand how they can be separate. But I think at the time, you know, I was in my late twenties, early thirties, and. Um, the way I think women, so much of how you perceive yourself is in how others perceive you. You're taught to be that way. And so if you tell me that I'm not interesting or that, um, uh, you know, you can't, that, that there's something even wrong with the way I talk because mm. I have vocal fry or, you know, those kinds of things. Like I will believe them at that point in my life. Um, I will think that I have to fix myself or yeah. I'll be angry that you think I have to fix myself. So I think I needed to do some, I think there was definitely a restlessness around this identity that I was wearing, whether it was one I identified with myself or not. And I needed to repair it in some way. And okay. I was trying to figure out how to repair it. And so how does the, how does the move to China come about? It, is it something you're looking for? Is it, is it an opportunity that lands in your lap? Why do you perceive that's the, the move you need to make? Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned, you talked to Elizabeth earlier. Elizabeth, uh, my friend Elizabeth, who we both know, is um, a big part of that story. Okay. Um, I was part of uh, a small group that Elizabeth led. We called ourselves the Mystics, and um, a lot of it was about coming into, 
your own and make it like actually saying out loud the things that you want, saying out loud, um, like being bringing all of your, what does it look like when you bring all of yourself to a table? That was one of the big questions I think that resonated for me. And um, I was visiting my brother in Chicago the summer before I moved and I checked my email. We were on a train platform late at night. We had just visited a friend and um, during the time that I lived in Austin, my parents got divorced and it was really messy. Okay. Okay. So much of um, my time in Austin, um, I think I stayed for seven years because I was kind of the middle person in the middle of that. Um, I ended up being in the middle a lot and helping my mom navigate that. And um, we're on a train platform that summer. My parents have been divorced now for at least a couple years, well, probably about a year or two. And um, my mom's in a new relationship. My dad's married to someone else now. And Mm. I got an email from someone I worked with, um, a coach that an instructional coach that I really valued. That was really important to me. And he was leaving the position and it was like the second or third email I'd gotten that summer. And I was like watching this, um, support network at work crumble and, I had wanted to teach internationally before my parents got divorced and had been starting to think about what would come next. And I got this email and I closed my phone and I looked at my brother and said, I was going international. I was done. And, um, by the next summer I was, um, I had been hired in China and was moving to Shanghai. Actually, somebody that I taught with had moved to China before me. Um, I was not planning to move to China. I was just planning to go international. And um, she told me about the organization. There's a few organizations that will partner people with international schools. They like have the job fairs and connect the people. And so um, I signed up with this, with this, program and posted my profile so that other schools could look and express interest and I could express interest. And before I even went, I was supposed to go to a job fair in Boston and I did, but before I even got there, this school in Shanghai was interested and was interviewing with me and I met them at the job fair. And I had imagined like living in London and rolling around in green hills or something. And that's sort of what I imagined. And then they convinced me uh, Shanghai was the place to be. And so my mom and my grandparents that weekend, I was calling. I ended up stuck in this hotel room because we had a huge snowstorm while I was there. And, um, it became part of the story when I got to Shanghai that my principal told about me getting this job as me walking through thigh high snow to get to the <laughs> interview the, okay. the morning of. And um, I think they wanted to see if I would actually do it because I was staying in a different hotel and I had to okay. crawl, basically yeah. crawl down the road. 
Um, but I did. And then I, <laughs> they offered me the job. So, okay. um, I left Boston with a job in China and yeah. And how much and time do you, did you have to get ready for that or to, to get your life kind of oriented towards that? Um, did you know this how was, long you would be there? Um, like what, what kinds of practical things were in play? Okay. Well then, so the initial contract is two years because they know that people are going to get homesick at a certain stage. If you make it one year, people will leave at the end of a year because it's hard, especially when your culture is so different from the culture you're entering. And so my initial contract was two years and I was at a, I was at a really good school. Um, there's a tier of international schools that they really take good care of you and they'll send out like, they give you a timeline of when things are going to happen and what you need to do at each part of the timeline. I got the job in February and by July things had been prepared and I was ready to move and I, I went to Shanghai. Okay. How, how long were you there in total? Uh, three years. Okay. I was, so I signed that two year contract and then signed on for another year. Okay. Yeah. So what are those three years like for you? Lots of traveling. I go to, um, several Asian countries and I learn how to travel alone and I really learn how much I like it. Um, and I learn how to navigate a world on my own, which is really empowering. I, um, I just learned a lot about, I think China helps me learn a lot about myself and about what my values are and what I stand for. Um, what I am okay being quiet about and what I'm not okay being quiet about, um, there's a lot, obviously a lot of inequity in China and it really bothered me. Um, and then I started traveling around to Asia and seeing like, that's a reality for most of the world that, um, I knew in an abstract way, but to like experience the inequity around the world, um, was, eye-opening and made me realize how much justice matters to me and how much, um, how much that's part of my teaching practice, but also how I live in the world and how I experience the world around me. And I, you know, this was before the, was it 2014, the election, um, no. In the U.S., uh, 20, 2016? Yeah, 2016, yeah. Right. Yeah, that was the, it was right before, I think I moved back that year for that election. Um, okay. But I had decided before then that, like, the things, the, the things going on politically in the U.S., they really mattered, and they mattered more than I knew before I had moved abroad. Um hmm. So that started to really matter a lot to me. I also, while I was there, um, I made some really good friends. I um, also got to experience schooling in a very different way. It we I learned a lot about like project based learning and about maker spaces. 
and what learning can look like, especially um, if people have money. And I wanted to bring some of that learning back to public schools in the U.S. And um, that was important to me. Um, I was so grateful for all the things that I learned while I was there about how to be a good teacher and how to really empower kids to be responsible adults. Um, So that was important. And then also while I was there, I um, dated someone that I knew when I was in college and the breakup was terrible. And so. um, That's totally long distance or is it someone who's able? Okay. So you're, yeah, you're doing he that. lives in okay. Chicago, and and then um, and I go and visit my brother, who's also living in Chicago, and um, we started kind of a short relationship. But the it's the first real relationship I've had since, like, relationship since college, and um, it brings up all kinds of like trauma for me. And so Mm. it was just not, it wasn't a good experience for me. And I think at that point I decided like, you know, I just like, I need some familiarity around me. I'm trying to navigate this terrible breakup by talking to people on the other side of the day, literally like it's nighttime there and I've got to go to work. Yeah. And, um, or it's nighttime here and everybody I love is going to work. So, um, I realized like I wanted to be closer to their side of the day than I was. Okay. So how, uh, while you're there, are you teaching, you're you're teaching English or writing Mm -hmm. the same? Okay. So same kind of close to same age students. Similar subject matter, just a a very different culture and system, I would imagine. Different culture. You know, in China, you can't go to private, like you go to your local school if you are a Chinese citizen. Like if you are a mainland Chinese citizen, you don't go to private school or everybody goes to the same school. So the school that I taught at was the American school um, and you had to have a passport from a different country to attend that school. You could not be locally Chinese. So a lot of my students were at least half Chinese, but they had passports for other countries. Okay. Yeah. So there's a sense in which you're, you're kind of living in the Chinese culture and then working in what what is kind of a, a mashup of uh-huh. some of Chinese culture that's surrounding you, but also American or, or have an American parent with a, with a different passport. Okay. Lots of Americans and, and Australians. Okay. Yeah. Who, around who me. have a parent or parents that are working in Shanghai or. They could, or they were, um, they might have a passport to another country and their parent might be a citizen there, but they've actually never lived there. Okay. which was true for a lot of the students that I taught. Like they were some kids identified as American, but they've never been to the U S they bought, they had always lived there. Okay. Um, yeah. It's definitely like a different kind of world. Like people who just never um, land, like they travel a lot and there are definitely people who they just don't have like a home base. Like, yeah. 
they travel all the time. They're like dandelions or whatever. So as that time, as you perceive that time is, is wrapping up and you're ready to be back in North American time zones or like, how do you decide where to move and, and what to do? Because at this point you've kind of extracted yourself from having to be around family or having to be in Texas or even Ohio, you know, you're very far removed from at that point. And if, if the continent is a blank slate to you, like how do you decide where you're going to go and, and kind of express your agency about that decision? There were a couple of, um, at first I had to decide if I was, um, going to leave and once I decided I needed to figure out if I was going to stay in an international setting or if I was going to come back to the U.S. I was okay. looking at, I knew there were openings at some schools in other countries that I was interested in, but um, a connection opened up for me here in New York and someone I knew, knew someone who I really respected, was looking for teachers to come work with them here. Okay. And so I kind of jumped at that. I was like, well, that sounds great. And it was turn to charter schools. Of course, it was not, um, I have a different understanding of charter schools now that I, well, now that I'm in New York. Um, it was definitely, uh, that's a whole other you know, char- I'm not a big fan of charter schools now, but at the time I recognized like this person that I really respect is working in one and um, it's in Harlem and it would be, you know, really, this would be a, a cool thing. They, they're open to like what I want to bring back. And so I stopped here in New York on the way back for Christmas break and interviewed and did a demo lesson and then um, went home for Christmas. And then sometime in mid-January, they offered me the position and I took it and um, started to prep my things to come back um, to the U.S. To It got tricky because I've never lived in New York and I didn't know how to find a place here. I was like, I'm going to show up with two cats and stay in an Airbnb maybe, like wander around, I don't know. And someone I knew that lived here said, I don't know that that's a great idea. I think that that's not a good idea at all, but I know someone who might need a roommate. Okay. And I was like, no, I'm in my thirties. I don't want a roommate. But then I met this, um, this person who ended up being my roommate for a year, Cliff, um, ended up being a good friend of mine. And, um, we started Skyping together and, Sweet Cliff, Cliff would go to, you know, went to a total probably like 30 apartments, recorded all of them so I could see them and would send them to me and I'd give my thumbs up or thumbs down. We applied to a few and we finally got one and um, moved in. Okay. So do you move into Harlem or how close to where you're going to be teaching in Harlem? Are you able to, to find a place? I actually, seven years later, still live in the same neighborhood okay. that I moved to. Um, I live a couple blocks away from where our first apartment was. I lived there for five years, longest I've ever lived in an apartment. Okay. 
And um, it's like maybe five, six stops down the train okay. uh, from the school that I was working at in Harlem. Okay. What's your experience like at, at that school? Um, are you there the whole time? Are you still there? What are the ways you, you find yourself? I, I'm, I've got to think that the, the, the giant thing that happens from 2020 uh, until like the present where, <laughs> where New York was essentially ground zero for, for so long with the pandemic uh, has, and you as a teacher, like that has to play into your story, but just kind of walk, walk me through what New York has been yeah. like. It was um, in the past seven years that I've been in New York, so much has changed for me. So I started teaching in Harlem and it was um, job. I, I love, I have never been at a school where I did not like the students. I've always loved the students everywhere I went. Um, I feel like I have to say that always because I think that the question teachers always get when they leave is like, but didn't, did we, were we bad? Or, you know, like kids, that's like the first question kids always ask when they find out you're leaving is where, mm. you know, they want to know, did it, was it them? And, um, and I remember feeling so awful that I only made it a year there, but that was when I showed up here to teach the person that I came to teach with was already, had already left the school. Okay. Um, they were now at another school in the network and they were no longer, um, going to use, the model, the pedagogical model for literacy instruction that I really believe in. They were not interested in any kind of project-based stuff. They hadn't hired a consultant group and we were going to do what this consultant group said. And that year was pretty unhappy. I spent two months building community in this classroom and trying to get along with the students. And then um, one of the teachers yelled at an instructional coach. Well, she didn't yell at her. That's not accurate. What she did do was tell this teacher that her texts weren't culturally responsive and that she didn't know what she was doing. Hmm. The kicker was that this teacher was black and the instructional coach was white. And the white lady started crying. And the teacher was like, I'm just, this is real. This is not, by the end of the week, the black teacher had been fired. The white instructional coach had quit. They pulled me out of the classroom that I had worked to build community in and put me in a classroom, in her old classroom. In the, um, the black teacher's classroom. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, it told, and she had told them that, you know, she had been fired and that she okay. had, had not been her choice to leave. So, um. Mm. The rest of the year, um, you know, New York is the most segregated school system in the United States. And so, um, and, and has been kept that way on purpose. There's like, you know, civil rights era, the teachers go on the longest strike in history Mm -hmm. to keep schools from desegregating. And, um, it's gross, the story of segregation here. And so the kids understandably, you're a white teacher coming into a black and brown classroom yeah they're testing you know they want to know are you going to stick around like all these other white teachers are just they're learning how to teach in my in our classroom 
are you going to do that too? Yeah. You're just coming in to like experiment and then go back to your, you know, white classroom. Um, I did not uh, stay after that year. I left after that year. But I did try to, I refused to do the curriculum that we had, that we were required to do. And that was part of the reason why I'd wanted to do some project-based stuff. And I tried some of it and they hired a new teacher to take over the instruction in the classroom. And then I became a support teacher. So um, that was their answer to the instructional decisions that I was making. Okay. So that's a hard year. It was a hard year. My best friend from college came to visit me halfway through the year because she was worried that I was not doing well. I was really unhappy. Um, Then um, by the end of the year, I'm applying to jobs nonstop. One school's really interested down in Battery Park. Um, I go there and I work for a year and there's um, some other conflict that ha- that's happening in that building. And some of it is racially, it's, it revolves around race a little bit. Um, but there, you know, the official, I was untenured. I was a brand new teacher in the DOE. And um, the bottom line was just that they had made a position uh, and moved this one teacher out of the classroom into this position and moved me into her old position and then no longer had money for her position. So they were going to access me and put her back in the classroom. Um, Gosh. and it would, it was, so year two is not starting off great. Year either. two. I'm like, I think I have to go back to Texas. Then a friend meets with me and she's like, can we have a glass of wine and I can talk you through why you don't need to leave if you don't want to. I'm like, okay. So um, we have a good conversation. And then shortly thereafter, I go to an interview at a school that that my principal has connected me with. She said this other school's looking for teachers. I go in. The principal um, is connected to like all the people in that I professionally admire and the te- the person that I had moved to New York to work with she is employed at this school she is working at this school okay. so I walk into the interview and I'm like what are you doing here like there's all you had lost touch or didn't didn't know that that's where they had landed okay mm-hmm. oh, wow. and um yeah I end up working there for four years um and that's where I am when 2020 hits um, we build the school. It's a brand new school. It's uh, in the West Village. When the pandemic hits, I'm teaching sixth grade for the first time and love it. I'm having a great year. The kids are amazing. And then um, they say that there's a, there's a case of COVID in Seattle. And We've just started once a month taking a few kids to Shake Shack at lunch, my team and I. And there's one day where we're all sitting and having Shake Shack for lunch and talking about COVID. And I'm certain it's not going to be a big deal, even though 
because you know i know it's hit it's hit china i'm concerned about my friends it looks like it's gonna let up though a little bit in china and then um this other teacher's convinced that that's not the case that we're in big trouble and within the month we're uh shut down yeah we close schools are closed we have to fight to get the schools closed we stay open longer than most other places and over 100 teachers die of covid in the city um and that directly impact you like friends of yours acquaintances of yours who nobody in my building died um the school that i work at now two teachers died during that time um one of them was um I, I don't know that covid was the but okay yeah. at any rate they they had a really that was a terrible time for them and um I did have um n- none of my students died but some of their parents did mm. and my friend Olivia lives in the building next door and so we start um, she's a science teacher on my team and after about a week or two of being indoors, we start. Uh, a friend from Texas sends me some masks that she's made. And we start masking up and going on walks. Because remember, you didn't know if you could be outdoors even yeah. without masks on. And um, we stay so far away from everybody else. And um, But Olivia becomes like my only real friend, aside from my roommate at that point. Um, that I can see on a consistent basis. And there's a funeral home down the road with a refrigerated truck mm, in the yeah. parking lot. The God, I, rem- I remember those pictures and videos, but you were, you're seeing it from your window or mm. walking by it. Okay. There's, um, we have like one of the worst infection rates in the city in our neighborhood because it's, um, it's, you know, hitting black and brown communities. And I live kind of around Washington Heights and Mm -hmm. um, the ER director down the street, there's a hospital down the street that ER director um, commits suicide. It's, Mm. it's just, it was really bad, really bad. And how quickly, I feel like I remember it being a story that like, does it take, does it take long? New York longer because of the intensity of the the pandemic there? Does it take a little longer to figure out what school is going to look like there? Or how how long are you like totally shut down and and not teaching before that that picks back up? There's a lot of political um so part of what was part of the complication is that the the school system here is controlled by the mayor it's i think the only school system in the country that's mayoral controlled and so any decisions that are made about closing schools and closing buildings are political decisions they're not in the best interest of families they're in the best interest of votes and so um then for a while the nurse the nurses union was pushing against closing schools because they needed child care while they went these really long shifts and um then that became a political talking point to pit the nurses union against the teachers union um 
the mayor, the mayor at the, it was de Blasio and he mm-hmm. was not interested in closing schools. And then, um, the day before schools closed, there was, a, there was talk about a wildcat strike, um, because striking is illegal here, so to speak, mm-hmm. but, um, not that it's legal anywhere, but, uh, we were actually talking about, about calling in sick and then they closed the schools. It wasn't, they just couldn't, there, there was no more illusions that it was safe to go back in the building. And I think we took probably two weeks to figure it out. Okay. Um, there was a lot of like asynchronous posting of work. Um, and then I think, gosh, it was probably by it, we would have closed in March. I think by May, we kind of started to figure it out a little bit. But even then in the summer, there was no unified direction about what we were going to do with school. There was no, we watched other schools open in the South. We're always the last school system to open up and there was still no plan released and no plan released. And there wasn't, there was just nothing. And then we're getting to be like a week out and we still don't know what's going to happen. Um, and a lot of teachers are getting medical accommodations to not mm-hmm. go back and it just doesn't seem safe. There's no plan. So, um, I actually got a medical accommodation and I was, I taught remotely for the year, that whole school year. Okay. Um, and some people taught in person. So we did a hybrid model and I was the primary teacher, but I also had some, um, subs that were hired and they taught in person with the few kids that came in. And that's how I would lead the instruction. They would sort of manage the kids that were there and both of us would, would teach. They were great. I miss them a lot. Eric and Beth, they were, Mm. they co-taught with me. And so you do that remotely for the, the year that would have been fall of 20 through spring of 21. That's that first full year. If you all, Mm -hmm. if everyone's home the rest of spring of 20. Yeah. Okay. That's also the year I I quit smoking. Um, and I pick up hiking and I start birding all the time. Hmm. Okay. So there were some like really teaching remotely was, um, really hard for a lot of people. And it was also, um, a really interesting time to experiment with different instruction. And I thought that we learned so much and it was a shame that it was, it became a political talking point so much instead of like a point of curiosity. Okay. Say more about that. What what was that journey like? Um, the kinds of things that you were learning or experimenting with that it sounds like you're saying some of what happened there, you feel like maybe should have continued or could have continued in education. I feel, I feel like there were a lot of ways that, you know, so much of, I had mentioned before about how standardized um, Uh education was and how much accountability is such a big thing, but digital learning is sort of the outback. Like it's like, nobody's really managing it or was managing it at that time. 
and you could experiment with some things. And so, um, I, I hosted one event where kids like wrote these little memoirs about their time in lockdown and families were invited to sign on. And some of the kids invited their grandparents in other States and we had something like 200 people signed down and the kids were like, we had a whole program. Kids spoke at certain times. We had like lines scrolling across the screen. It was incredibly powerful. It was like the highlight of the year. Yeah. And it was kids storytelling. It yeah. was kids like talking about their experiences. And I don't know that we could have done that not digitally. Yeah. Nobody's grandparents, you know, over in Illinois or whatever going to log in. Um, unless we have that access. And so um, it also revolutionized like opportunities for us to talk to families who like work late shifts and can't make parent conferences at five, six o'clock in the evening. Um, So um, I was able to have conferences with parents while they were on an elevated train or when they were like on break on a shift or, um, and so there was more access in some ways. Um, and it really, it really pushed against the idea that learning and, and, and education happens in the four walls of a classroom. And I think we need to think more about like, how can we broaden our understanding of literacy and of learning outside of, um, a building, you know? I think that that's so important. So that was, um, I think those, some of those questions and some of that thinking, those were lost opportunities as they really like scrambled to continue to hold teachers accountable or, you know, make sure the kids were learning or to try to prove that the kids were not all right. Um, but in reality, like suicide rates dropped for kids during that time, um, there was lots of unreported, there were, there were unreported incidents of things happening with kids because teachers weren't seeing them all the time. On the other hand, lots of, lots of information came out about how um, mandated reporting doesn't always help children. And so there were all kinds of things that would have been really interesting for us to follow up on and have longer conversations about that. I think the scramble to get back in person as quickly as possible and never go remote again, not even for a day, not even when New York city floods all over the place, um, should we shut down? And I think that's a loss. Hmm. That makes sense to me. What have the, what have the last few years looked like for you? Um, so um, we have a new mayor now, and he cut uh, several billion dollars from the education budget. And the school that I was at for four years in the West Village, I lost that position. But because I have tenure now, I was guaranteed a position somewhere else. So I now work at a school in the Bronx, and okay. it's probably the happiest I've ever been in a school building in New York. It's, okay. it's really supportive and great. I'm really happy there. Um, <clears throat> I have, um, I live with a roommate now. I had moved out of, I was out of a roommate situation for two years. I lived alone. Um, 
we had great pandemic deals on apartments. And so I lived alone for a while, but I'm back with a roommate and it's a friend that I made during the pandemic that I walked with. Um, she's great. Um, and, um, I still don't smoke. Um, I, um, it's real. I went to a birding conference a couple weekends ago. I'm like very into birding now. So what What does that mean? Describe that. The birding now for me, outside of a school context, is um, after we're done talking later in a couple hours. I'm going uh, to go birding with a group in Central Park because it's peak fall migration right now. Okay. And um, I bring my binocs and. We um, log the birds that we see in eBird, which is an app put out by Cornell. Hmm. You can do some also, it's connected to Merlin, which is a bird identification app also put out through Cornell. I'm not a Cornell advertisement, but it's, those apps are so just great. I love the birding community. Um, It's really inclusive and it's really it's growing more inclusive and um, it's there. You meet so many interesting people. It's becoming more age diverse. Um, it's becoming, um, especially here in New York, cause we're on the Atlantic flyway. And um, so the migration patterns here, like uh, people get very excited about birds. So okay. there's a lot of spots to see them. So that is my, I, I've done more of that than reading the past couple of years. Um, When I quit smoking, one of the hard things was finding ways that I like to read. I used to sit and smoke and read. And and now I'm like, what do I do? Do I drink tea and read? I don't know. So, um, But but being out and birding has become your primary hobby. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. um, I was taking care of a sick cat for a couple of years, so I've not traveled as much. But Mia's gone, um, and uh, and you know, after I pay off her medical debt, I'll be able to travel a little more and mm. just one foot in front of the other. I, I'm still, you know, I have some things I'm thinking about for the future, like maybe another teach abroad thing, maybe okay. buying a house in my hometown. But mm. you know, it's um, I feel like. If one of the cool things about uh, being 43 and kind of not having followed a script is that I've been able to um, kind of figure out what the next, what comes next without somebody else telling me, which has been kind of a neat experience after yeah. my, the first part of my life and feeling like I had sort of a way that I had to yeah. be. So. I get that. Um, I feel like I, I feel like I tell myself all the time, like, like my self-talk when, when I'm walking down a path of like, what am I doing or how did I get here? Or, um, what do I do next? Like on most days, this, like this voice kicks in that says like, you're, you still have so much life left. Like probably, you know, like I know the last few years haven't, have showed us how fragile life can be um, and the things that we would never expect could happen, might happen, but that the odds, uh, you know, still are, are, are in, 
my favor for, for having more time, more energy, more life. Um, and so I, I think I can get some of what you're saying, like, and it's exciting to think about, well, the, the path that we might put ourselves on, as opposed to the paths we found ourselves on always. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of excitement around that, even if, even if we don't have, I don't know about you, I don't have a, a five year, 10 year plan, anything like that. Uh, but, but that's, that is good for me. That is good for a person like me who used to worry a lot about the future um, or, or would only find myself kind of resenting people in the past or regretting my decisions or actions in the past or trying to plan or worry about the future and never being present. Um, mm. There's, there's power in that. For sure. And I think, you know, that we get to choose, like there's, I think, um, there was a moment in Austin where I realized that I was living out sort of the same day over and over again. And it would feel different because I was reading a lot. I was reading lots of books and that was an important part of my life, important time in my life. But it also, um, get, I also get to live the story too. Like, I don't have to just read the stories. I can live them out. Mm, And, um, um, you know, in Dory, in the picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde writes about like being the, the, are you the artist? There's two types of artists, the ones that, um, that, write the words they like basically they they're writing or creating the art that they can't live into or they're terrible artists and they're living they're um they're living the art instead of actually creating it it's like yeah and I, that's an age-old tension for me to figure out like am i living art or am i creating art or can i do both yeah because i, I don't I mean, what's been your experience? Do, do, is there a judgment for you there where one feels right or wrong or more right or wrong? I, I, I would think that it's probably a seasonal kind of thing in life. The, the time is I where, yeah. Seasonal for sure. I think there were times where I felt really defensive about that, about that decision. Like if I have to t- p- pick either or, and, um, I used to feel like really strongly that like there it was creating art was always the, the choice you were supposed to make. And then mm-hmm. now I'm like, Oh, I think I just would prefer to do both. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go back and I feel like I read that like in high school or whenever we all kind of had to and haven't mm-hmm. thought about it much since that is a very interesting picture. And I know that's mm-hmm. been a struggle for me too, that, that that sounds like it puts, puts great language to, of the times where you feel like you're a bystander versus an active participant in, in life mm-hmm. or in culture or, um, and I, I think it is easy to, to put some judgment uh, around that instead of having some grace for ourselves in any season of life we're in. Um, mm-hmm. so that, yeah, that, that's an interesting thought and, and probably a kind of a, a good way for us to, 
to end or wrap up, like being very aware that we'll probably, we'll both continue to have those, uh, those experiences in, in both directions. Um, I always like to ask if there's anything that I've, you know, there's never a script there. I never write down questions beforehand. It just goes where it goes. So Mm -hmm. is there anything that you feel like is, is important in your story that we didn't cover or something that, you know, if this is going to be kind of a chronicle of, of your life at 43 and the way you were thinking about it up to now, is there something you feel like should be addressed before we wrap up? Um, I think we really covered a lot. It's funny though. I will say like, even just in the time between the time we talked before and the time we talked now, it's just funny how many things happen and how it it feels like there are big chapters that become like a sentence or two in your life that 10 years previous are these whole elaborate, like fully developed things and, it's interesting to see how your the plot line to your life kind of the climax will shift as your life goes on yeah. or these layers are some layers are more important than they were 10 years ago or it's just interesting to yeah, see that. that I think you're right on there that's why I would love I mean it's not something I've done so far kind of with, with a handful of people like yourself um, but but I think about how, interesting it would be in a person's life for them to have every five years or every 10 years, like this, uh, this opportunity to, mm. to look back and think about life so far to, if they're not journaling or if they are journaling or just the importance of looking back and reflecting and sometimes even changing our perspective on a thing that happened. Um, sure. Like what maybe like what we would have thought a decade back was this huge life event or very formative for us. Um, maybe we've done some work since then and realized like, Oh, that doesn't hold the power for me that it would have a decade ago or something that we don't think about much at all. Now we realize in five or 10 years was very formative. I, I find all that really interesting. So I, I know what you mean. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would have assumed that we would have talked a lot more about China yeah, th- yeah, three years there, right. but it was pretty quick. And but because that was today, that's not the way you're thinking back on your life. But if I sat down with you and hit record and said for an hour, we're going to talk about your time in China, you would probably have ways to fill that hour. You know, you've got mm-hmm. stories to share, things to tell. But but w- but when we're when we're talking about our life and what we've learned and what's formative or important, it's going to shift. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, th- I think you're right there. Well, I'm glad to hear that you feel like it was a was good or, or a good enough uh, c- kind of reflection uh, on life so far. Thanks so much, Jessica. Have a great rest of uh, of your day off today. Thank you. Hi, it's Sam, and I've got one more thing before we end. Uh, you've heard how these talks go now, and so if you're interested in finding time with me to have a story so far session of your own, check out oakroots.net and book a time for yourself. I hope to talk with you soon.